There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Main thing I want to say at first, y'all, is I just think we get hell wrong more than we get it right. And I think uh, I can go all the way back to my youth days, back when I used to go to hell houses. Anybody else go to hell house? Anybody? Most of the people who went to hell houses aren't in church anymore <laughs> because they left Christianity after going to the hell house. And so it's uh, when instead of on Halloween going trick-or-treating, you go to a hell house. They still give you candy and stuff, but you go to a hell house like in a church or something, and they do this whole play where there's some rooms that these kids your age, like they were drinking and driving and they got killed. And then somebody was like making out with their girlfriend and they got killed. And, and like some kid, just like awful things happen. Like, like you fail the test and you curse and then you die on the way home or something. And all the people, they end up in hell and they're trying to tell you about it. They're trying to tell you how awful it is in hell and how you don't want to do the bad things that they did. So don't drink and, and don't make out and, and don't cuss. And if you don't do those things, then you get to go to heaven. And at the end of the hell house night, you had an option. You can go into the hell room where there's just darkness and Nickelback playing. <laughs> or you go into the heaven room where there's, there's Dr. Pepper and pizza. When you're 13 years old, it's not even a choice. You follow the Dr. Pepper wherever it may lead. The thing I think we might get wrong about hell, I think there might be plenty of Dr. Pepper in hell. I think what might be lacking in hell isn't Dr. Pepper or pizza or stuff we like, good stuff, but just maybe the stuff we need. There may be a bunch of Dr. Pepper with no water, for example. I think we get hell wrong a, a, a lot. What do you think about hell? It's a rhetorical question, but if somebody asked you what you think hell is like, whether it's real or not, what would you say? Who goes there? Who belongs in hell? The recent episode of the show, The Good Place. Anybody watch The Good Place? About as many people as like the Patriots. <laughs> so enjoy that show while you can, because I doubt it'll be around very long. Um, 
Good Place is a show that's supposedly about heaven, and it's, uh, it's sort of a secular version of what heaven will be like. It's kind of silly. It's a silly comedy. But this uh, recent episode, they went to the bad place. They went to hell for the first time. And according to the creators of this show, the people who belong in hell are people like women who, who floss their teeth in public places or, or waiters who come and see how much you ate and say, well, I guess you hated it. Or, <laughs> or the, the first man who ever heard a woman explain something and then said, well, actually. And um, they, they said people that, that go to hell are people like white people with dreadlocks. They were in hell as well. People who get back from vacation and say, oh, I need a vacation for my vacation are definitely in hell, according to the show. And the man who sent you that unsolicited picture, inappropriate picture of himself, and when you didn't respond, he texted you back, so? He's in hell, too. What do you think about hell? Who's there or who will be there? Or does it exist at all? Almost half of Americans don't believe it exists at all. 70-something percent of Americans believe in heaven, but only 52, 53 percent of Americans believe in hell. Now, the evangelical version of hell, typically, if you ask someone what an evangelical Christian believes about hell, they would describe a place that looks like, a lot like the picture on the screen behind me. Just awful, fiery, hot, torture chambers where instead of you walking a pet around like the demons walk you around with chains around your neck and they beat you and it's just awful, merciless existence forever. Now the evangelical view typically, traditionally might say that we all deserve that place because all of us are rotten to the core. We're all sinful. We're all bad. And so we all deserve it. But God in his infinite mercy has chosen to save a few of us he chose to save the baby, so the babies and little kids are off the hook for whatever reason, even though any parent knows they can be as evil as any of the rest of us. <laughs> they get a pass until they're 12 or something, depending on which church you go to. And, and then Christians get a pass. Now, not all Christians, but most Christians. Only re really just the Christians who believe everybody else is in hell are the ones who get a pass, according to this kind of vein of Christianity. So, like, Episcopalians, still in danger. You know what I mean? Uh, Universalists, uh, uh, white Methodists, most white Methodists, eh, on the fence, you know, like, we're not real sure how it helps sometimes, so uh, maybe, maybe we're in danger uh, as well. Now, we Christians, regardless of what you think about hell, we need to understand that's what people think you think about hell. If you're a Christian, you need to understand how ridiculous and insane the Christian doctrines, as people understand them, sound to those on the outside looking at it. In fact, it's like a top three issue for people that have walked away from the church. Top three reason why this idea of hell, this punitive, bloodthirsty God of ours who just relishes the chance to send most people he created to eternal torment is a big problem because people hear us saying two things. First of all, they hear Christians saying he created everything and then they hear us saying he knows everything. And so we can only be left to assume that he created hell knowing most of us would go there. And this sounds insane and archaic and just ancient 
to people. We have a word for it in our modern justice system, this kind of thing. The word is premeditated. Sounds like God thought this up before he set anything in motion. God meant for this to happen. He didn't really allow for it. It's his master plan. This is a big problem for a lot of people. And some of you that have walked away from the church and you're kind of coming back to Jesus through the story might have been one of the reasons that you left. Maybe it's a stumbling block for you as well. So we're here today to make sense of all this. And what are we going to do? Uh, what are we going to say about hell? I hope that by the time you leave today, you have a little bit more of a cogent response to someone who asks you what Christians believe to be true about hell. Really good place to start with this question is with what Jesus believed. What did Jesus believe about hell? I encourage you during this sermon to have your study guides handy. I know I don't usually encourage that. I don't usually care what you do with your study guides. I don't care if you doodle or make paper airplanes to throw at people. I don't care. Today is a little more important because this story matters so much. Or if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke 16 as well. What did Jesus believe about hell? Here's the common misconception I think we have about Jesus. I think we think Old Testament God talks about hell. Paul talks about hell. But Jesus, he's the good guy in the Bible. Jesus didn't believe in all that stuff. Jesus was really just, you know, he was being allegorical when he talked about hell. Jesus, you've heard, probably you've heard a preacher like me stand up here and preach a sermon about Gehenna and how Gehenna wasn't hell. It was just a valley outside of Jerusalem and he was using it allegorically to tell people to just be better people and be happy and be good and then you don't have to go and burn in Gehenna. Ugh, I wish I could let us off that easily. Jesus doesn't, however. Jesus talks more about hell than all the other people in the Bible combined. So we should pay attention. Sometimes he uses the word Gehenna. Other times he uses the word Hades. Other times he uses another word that really just means hell. But he talks more about it than anybody else in the Bible, than everybody else in the Bible combined. What are we going to do with this? This Jesus who won't stop talking about the fires of hell. Now, I've been asked before, you may be wondering, like, do I have to believe in hell as a fiery place in order to be a Christian? The answer probably is no. I'll, I'll, let, I'll grant you that. You don't have to believe in hell as a fiery place because I believe when Jesus uses the word fire to describe hell, he's being metaphorical. But before you breathe a sigh of relief and say to yourself, oh, I'm glad I don't go to one of those crazy churches. This church makes sense. Let me finish that sentence by saying, I believe when Jesus says Fire of hell is being metaphorical for something much, much worse than fire. Something much worse than fire. Fire is the only word of the human language that could do it even any justice. So there's something even worse that he's warning us against. Now to illustrate this point, uh, Jesus tells a story about a rich man and a beggar outside of his house. Before we get into this point, I just want to say, without being too dark or morbid about this, I think the reason I wrote this sermon with such fear and trembling this week is because I feel like more of us are in danger than we care to admit. The funny thing about people that do believe in hell, only 2% of us who believe in hell believe we're going there. 96% of us who believe in heaven know we're going to heaven. But only 2% of us who believe in hell think we're going there. I'm not sure those numbers really check out. So I think there's a warning for all of us, regardless of where we spend our Sunday mornings. Jesus tells a story to cast forth, to send forth that warning for all of us. He tells a story about two men, uh, a, a 
beggar named Lazarus and a rich man. What should catch your attention here is that the beggar has a name. It's the only character in any of Jesus' parables that has a name. Have you noticed he doesn't name any of his other characters? This is the only one. 40 parables, he tells. One character is named this beggar who has dogs licking his sores, who's begging for food, subsisting outside of this rich man's house. Now, you would think if Jesus goes out of his way to name one guy in a story, he wouldn't name the other guy too, but he doesn't. He gives the, the beggar a name, Lazarus. Lazarus is a name that means the one whom God has helped. The one whom God has helped. That's what it means literally. Okay? But he doesn't name the other guy. The other guy is just the rich guy. It's very hard to tell anything else about him other than the fact that he's rich. There's a few details we can pick apart here. So, uh, so context clues tell us he, he was very rich because he wore purple every day. You had to be very rich to wear purple every day. And this is why. They didn't have like, you know, purple garment dyes, artificial dyes that just made purple like every other color. If you wanted to wear purple, you had to pay the price. And the only way to get the purple dye was by crushing this little known shellfish in the region of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And so it was a nearby region, but these shellfish were rare. And to get one gram of purple dye, you had to crush 10,000 of these shellfish. And so you can imagine how much it must have cost to wear purple every day. But here's the other part of it that we know. This is from archaeological evidence, and you can just surmise it yourself. They also didn't have Tide detergent back then. And so if you had a garment that you wore that was made from 10,000 shellfish being crushed, guess what you smelled like when you wore it? So these guys, these very rich guys, wore their purple clothes and, and robes with such pride, and they looked like heaven, but they smelled like shellfish. <laughs> they stank, and they wore their stank with pride. They were known, not just for the, how they looked, but for how they smelled. And Jesus told stories like these to communicate these truths, particularly in a Jewish worldview. So unless Jesus says in a story that this character is something other than a Jew, you should presume that he's a Jew. Like next week's story, the Good Samaritan, um, we talk about uh, the, the Samaritan. He points out that this person is not a Jew. Otherwise, just assume he's a Jew. So what that means is that this rich man is Jewish. He's not an atheist. He's not a secularist. He's not a pagan or anything like that. He's Jewish. He's a man of God. This guy went to temple. This guy knew God. He spoke of God. He followed God's laws. He was probably a really good Jew because God was blessing him in so many ways, you know? That's how we talk about these, uh, these riches. It's hashtag blessed stuff. So this guy was blessed because of his faith, his belief in God. So why does Jesus tell a story about a rich man, a rich Jewish man, a rich man of God who's in hell without a name? He believed the right things and did the right things, but he's in hell. Why? Abraham tells us why. He says, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. While Lazarus received his bad things. Now, let me just clarify this. I, 
I worry sometimes that we think that if you receive a lot of good things in this life, this means that you're going to receive a lot of bad things in the next. That's not really what this is. This, it has more to do with the kind of philosophy that was going on in Jesus' time already. Greek philosophers had already identified this idea of um, our ultimate good. When he says you've received your good things, he's talking about his ultimate good. You've received your best things. You've received them already. What's he talking about? The ultimate good for this guy was money, was stuff, was wealth. You received it. Past tense, you already had your highest good. Philosophers talk about your highest good being the thing around which you build your identity, who you are. So whatever you choose is your best thing, that's your identity. So we all have to watch out for this. This is a problem for all of us. Because even for me, like it can be, my identity is not built around God sometimes. Sometimes it's built around me being up here. Eric the preacher man that everybody listens to for some unknown reason. People come and listen. Well, look at me. I'm the preacher man. It could be as easy as that. It can be Jane the Christian girl in church. Every Sunday, building your identity around your best good thing, religion. It can be career, building your identity around your career. It can be being a parent, being married, or just getting married, not being single anymore. All of these things we can build our identities around. If you're looking for a test, a litmus test to know if you have one of these idols, one of these good things that you're building your life around, just whatever... If it went away tomorrow, you wouldn't know who you are anymore. And that's it. And if it went away tomorrow, you'd be lost. And that's why I say, if I lost this, I might be lost. So this has taken the place of God if I'm not careful. Okay? Just using that as an example. Not just being confessional. Just saying everybody has something. When a good thing becomes the best thing, we build our identity around it, even if it's family or religion. Um, that, I think, is the definition of sin. So uh, Christians define sin this way, as, as anything that, that we build our lives around that is not God. So sin isn't just doing the wrong stuff, breaking the commandments. No. Sin is building your life around an identity that is something other than God. It's very simple. It's the best definition of sin I have ever heard. So to, to understand hell, I, I need you to understand these two things. First of all is the concept of sin. Secondly, I want you to understand the concept of time. Sin and time, all right? Y'all stick with me. This is some heady stuff. Sin and time. Two concepts to understanding a true notion of what hell is. So Christian, we believe that sin is building your identity on anything but God. So we believe we're created to put God at the center and build our identity around God. That's the purpose of our creation to just relish and relax in the glory of his love. And that's it. Be his. Just be his. And that's enough. But anything other than that, we believe, even if it's something good, has the power to tear you apart. Here's why. Sin works like addiction does. 
Now, everyone here has been touched by the power of addiction. Firsthand or secondhand, somebody that you love has been torn apart by addiction. Sometimes I feel like people that are outwardly addicts, right, like people that are in recovery, for example, have been given a gift. Because when you have one of those addictions that is illegal or taboo, um, and you have to go to a recovery group to deal with it, you discover in recovery group a secret that the rest of us are not privy to. The secret is that all sin is addiction. All sin functions like addictions do. And when you go through recovery, some of the holiest people that you will ever meet are in 12-step groups because they've understood how to deal with sin as an addiction. Here's what I mean. All sin, all addiction work the same way according to the law of diminishing returns. And so whatever it is, this good thing you have that you're building your identity around, however much of it satisfied you on day one does nothing for you on day 100. And so whatever it is, whether it's, uh, whether it's your career, money, power, sex, whatever, drugs, whatever your thing is, the law of diminishing returns says you will perpetually need more of it. And you will perpetually feel less satisfied by whatever you get. You know how it works? Do you feel it in your chest? You know, you've experienced this, right? How it just doesn't satisfy you the same one day to the next. That's how sin works. So more than any other substance or any other highest good people build their identities around, Jesus warns us most about money. Money. And this wasn't 2018 in River Oaks when he's telling this. This is, this is 2,000 years ago to people that had very little. Money, he says more than anything else, has the power to become an addiction for us. Now, everybody knows that Jesus said the love of money is the root of all evil. In fact, we hide behind that teaching, do we not? Whenever somebody threatens us or challenges our liking of money, we go, no, it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money. I don't love money. I just like it a lot. You know, like we hide behind Jesus' teaching. I just like it. I like it a lot, but I don't love it. No. Where is the line between loving money and just liking it a whole lot? I think we are self-deceived. And I think most of us have to check ourselves because we're falling for one of the devil's oldest tricks in the book. Jesus and the Pharisees always going after each other. Why is Jesus so disappointed in the Pharisees? We always say it's because of their religion. Not just that. Look a few verses earlier in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, where it says the reason was because the Pharisees loved money. Maybe they had some of the other stuff right. Yeah, they're pursuing holiness. They're pursuing righteousness. They're lifting up and honoring the word of God. They're building their lives around the word of God. But it's when they fell in love with money. They could not stomach the teachings of Jesus. When you love money, you'll always chase more of it. There will never be enough of it. When you find what you're looking for, you'll be looking for something else, feeling less and less satisfied every time you find it. That is how sin works. Sin. The second concept, what was it? Time. Thank you. Eternity. All right? So, we believe... Christians believe, most people, not even Christians, but like most people believe that when we die, there's some part of us that lives on. Our soul is what we call it. Some part of your consciousness lives on beyond your body. So the question that the 
early Christians asked when they were formulating their notions of sin and things like that was, what happens to our addictions? If we see in this short life on earth the power of addiction and the law of diminishing returns, what is to say, why should we ever believe that we leave our addictions behind when we die? Are you following me? What if we take those attachments, what if we take those idols with us beyond this life? Why would we not take those things into eternity? C.S. Lewis talks about this a lot. Sometimes I quote him on this. One of my favorite quotes is he says, there, there are a good many things that I should not worry about if I'm only going to be here for 80 years or so. But I should very much worry about if I'm going to go on forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that only a few people notice in this life. But they might be absolute hell in a million years. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, he writes. Always complaining. Always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is taken care of. Fire. That's the fire. Do you feel it? A little bit? Can you sense it in yourself? Even if it's just a little spark, a little possibility, or a little flame burning within you, or maybe you have a raging fire of this already taking you or consuming you. Instead of appreciating money or enjoying money as a tool God gives you to enjoy life and give it away and bless people with, you love it. You start to hate people that stand in your way of it or try to take some of it from you, like the government or my neighbor or that beggar in front of my house. Increasingly, your interactions with people start to be economic in nature so that the people you value most are the ones through whom you can get more of the stuff you need. And if somebody doesn't offer you that, then they're no one to you. You don't even notice them. They're just a hindrance to you, a stumbling block in your path to get more money. And, and slowly, you just care about how to get more of it and how to protect what you already have. You see, our idea of God, the real idea of God that we have isn't what you saw on the screen earlier. It's not a bunch of poor souls who had no chance to get out of hell climbing up some fiery cliff. God, please don't close the door. God, I want out. And God's just like, no, sinners. You know, that's how we think of it. That is not how it works. It's not an angry God sending people that are relishing the chance to burn them forever. It's just a man who counts his money every day until he wakes up without a name, until he's just a rich guy and nothing more. He's rich, but he stinks. That's what Jesus meant by fire. 
The rich man looks up and sees the beggar Lazarus standing before Father Abraham in heaven, and he asks Abraham a question. This is where things get weird, y'all. This is where you see the depth of his addiction carrying over beyond this life into eternity. Because he is in heaven, and he says, Abraham, send down that boy with some water. I'm thirsty. He doesn't say, Abraham, can I get out of here? Abraham, can you throw me a rope? Abraham, send down that boy, that beggar. Serve me some water, boy. Don't you know it's hot down here? He doesn't want out of hell. He wants Lazarus in hell with him. This is, this is amazing stuff. Jesus is teaching us, and we just miss it if we just listen uh, to other voices in culture telling us what hell is like. So even hell can't stop the rich man from treating Lazarus like the help. He probably thinks Lazarus will do it for a few shekels, and so he tempts the beggar with a few shekels. And yeah, he might take it to the liquor store or to get some smokes or whatever, but I don't care. I'm thirsty. Completely lost in his addiction. But Abraham says, a great chasm is fixed between you and us so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. He's saying there may be some in heaven who want to go and help those in hell. Of course, People in heaven are going to want to go and help loved ones or people that may need to know the truth about what's coming, but they cannot. Why? I don't know this part. That's my knowledge. I'm not sure why not, other than the fact that maybe it wouldn't do any good. But then the real interesting part to me is the next line. He says, a great chasm is fixed between us so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over there from there to us. So he says there are people who want to go from heaven there, but he doesn't say people who want to go from there to heaven. He just says they can't. He takes the word desire or want out of the, of the part of the sentence that's about people in hell. You can want to leave heaven. You can't want to leave hell. When you're so deep in it, you can't imagine living anywhere else. Anyone who's ever been in an addiction knows what that's like. You can't imagine not being addicted. How do people live without this thing that I love? You're in hell, you wonder, how does anyone live anywhere else but here? The quote from Lewis ends this way. It says, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Here's my best working definition of hell. Hell is a freely chosen identity based on something besides God going on forever. It is not God's premeditated torture chamber for those people we don't like, those Muslims and those Montrose dwellers, and we don't, we don't like them. We don't like them because they're going to hell. No, that's not. The Bible tells us about hell. The Bible says there will be believers in hell. Plenty of people who believe the right things will end up there because at the end of the day, it's not about what you believe, it's about who you are. We see that in the next part of this story. We see that when, when, uh, when the, the rich guy asks Abraham to send Lazarus to go and warn his family, right? So, so he's basically saying, first of all, another part of addiction is that you blame everybody else for the problems that you're in. And he's blaming God for being in hell. He's basically saying, hey, I didn't have enough information. So, yeah, it stinks down here, but go and tell my brothers at least so they'll know the stuff that I didn't know. 
And Abraham says to him, they have the prophets and Moses. Let them listen to them. They have the prophets and Moses. Let them listen to them. And then the rich guy's like, no, no, no. You don't get it, Abraham. If they saw a dead guy, and a dead guy told them, someone coming back from the grave told them about heaven and hell, they would believe. And Abraham says, no. This is the only part of the story where I'm like, really? I feel like if the rich guy's brothers saw the beggar's ghost in their living room saying, hey, uh, your brother sent me and it's really hot down there. You guys should be careful. I feel like they would believe that might be enough. Or I, I feel like if you got a letter in the mail tomorrow from somebody you love that died five years ago saying, hey, be careful, watch out. You might be careful and watch out. You might believe something differently. But listen, that's not what this is. This is not about belief. This is about identity. Those are two different things. You can believe all the right things and be the wrong kind of person. Right? This is about building your life around who, who, who God is, right? So here's the difference. If someone scares you about hell, if a ghost shows up and says, watch out for hell, and you believe in hell, you're just scared of it. And so then you start doing all the right things so you don't have to go to hell. It's still about you, right? You were scared into right belief or right action, but nothing changed within you. The only thing that changes you from within is grace. When you realize the grace of God that's been there all along, that's when you realize you must change fundamentally from within. That's what Abraham is telling the rich guy when he says about Moses and the prophets. Saying, he's not saying, you have the Bible, follow it. No, he's saying, hey, God's been with your people from the very beginning. God's been with you. God created you and gave you life. You, you exist and you're situated in all this beauty and glory. Look around you. You think this comes from nowhere and you know love and you know food and you know sex and you know joy. You think all that's an accident? Where do you think that came from? Do you think you earned it? No. God gave it to you. God has spoken to you clearly. What will it take? That's the question. What will it take? Sometimes I feel like God must be asking us the same question. What's it going to take for us to believe once and for all? To be changed fundamentally from within. That was not for dramatic effect. <laughs> What's it gonna take? God has been with you all along. God has looked after you all along. He has given you his grace every moment of every day. And if you think to, my, to yourself, well, I need a miracle. I need somebody to come back from the dead and tell me. He's done that. He has done that. That's why we are here. It is not by accident. It is not a hoax or a myth. It is the truth. So let it change you from within. Avoiding hell is not about being scared enough to do the right things or believe the right things or spend your Sunday mornings at the right place. 
It's about building your identity around the grace of God. To the extent that tomorrow morning you wake up and you are not the rich guy, you are not the businessman, you are not super mom, you are not the cute girl, you are not any of those things you have been, you are Lazarus, the one whom God has helped. I am Lazarus, should be our answer every time someone says, hi, who are you? I am Lazarus, the one whom God has helped every day of my life since I was born. I am the one who God has helped. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us even when we forsake you and even when we miss all the ways you're speaking to us and through us. We love you. Even if we haven't behaved as such, we do love you. I pray for fundamental heart change to be happening in people's lives right now. So that it's not about religion or acting or beliefs. It is just about who we are at our core. Break us down and build us up in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.